you'd like to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. going to read beginning at verse 6 of Mark 1. Our focus uh, this morning will be on verses 9 through 11. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed come to You for wisdom and understanding. The Scriptures say that in Thy light we see light. We ask that You would shine light upon Your, your Scriptures, upon our hearts, that we may understand these things and see the glory the beauty, the majesty, the awe that is here of our Lord Jesus Christ coming publicly to begin his ministry, his ministry that would last forever. We ask that you would open our eyes that we may see. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Around the year A.D. 144, a man by the name of Marcion was at Rome and he was ex, uh, excommunicated by the Christian church for his belief system. Some refer to it as a, a dualist system, but Marcion is, is known for being one who believed that Jesus was the Savior sent by God and Paul was his chief apostle, but he rejected the Old Testament completely, the Hebrew Bible and the God of Israel. He set up in his teaching that the God of the Old Testament, of whom we have heard this morning, was an evil God, that he was a tyrant, that he was separate and a lower entity than the God of the New Testament, who was all-forgiving and all-loving. And even though Marcion held Jesus to be the Son of the Heavenly Father, he understood that the incarnation of Jesus Christ was an imitation, that Jesus took on an imitation of material body, and therefore, Marcion denied Jesus' physical and bodily birth and death and resurrection. 
There are many in our day that are still teaching these types of things, that Jesus was God, but he just kind of imitated the form of a man. Because he was God, he could do that. Or that God, Jesus was, on the opposite side, he was a man, but he was not God. He was not divine, but a good man sent by God to call people to repentance. And I am not here to go through all of those things, but merely to say that it is for centuries a misunderstanding of the scriptures and drawing conclusions that are not here in the Word of God. I have read that St. Augustine spoke against these heresies. I could not find uh, the exact place where Augustine apparently, in answer to Marcion, said, and I was hoping to impress those Latinists among you by reading this in Latin, but I have just now chickened out. <laughs> I will translate it for you. But Augustine said to those like Marcion, go to the Jordan, and there you will see the Trinity. There you will see the glory of God in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the writings of Mark, we, we know his writing now to be short and, and concise, and even perhaps in the passage that we've read this morning, droll. Jesus' public appearance, Jesus, the Son of God, he's announced in verse 1, this is the beginning of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and when he finally appears in verse 9, he says, and it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, we, we know from the scriptures, uh, the New Testament scriptures, uh, people were amazed, Can, you know, is a prophet supposed to come from Nazareth? And the answer is, well, yes, we, we, we know how he got there. We know how he brought Mary and Joseph and the baby out of Egypt, he called his son. And they ended in Nazareth in Galilee. We, we know from Isaiah, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, he foretells that he would come from Galilee then the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He shall make his land glorious, he says later. He shall... I think in chapter 11, he will make the land glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. So far, so good. John, or Mark gives us a very uh, succinct phrase here. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So far, so good. And then, and then as Chuck alluded to this morning in Sunday school, there is so much packed in the next couple of verses that, that we would be amazed. And Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. The, the New American Standard just does not do justice to that phrase. 
Literally, the heavens were, the old word is rent asunder. They were being torn. The heavens were tearing open. And Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. And I, I don't know, I've tried to understand this. What is the significance of this tearing? I, I know from the Psalms that, that David twice mentions that, that God, he, he, in once he could see that God had, had bowed the heavens and come down. And then later in Psalm 148, when he is fearful of his own life and his enemies coming against him, he says, bow the heavens and come down, O Lord, come down and be my rescuer, be my deliverer. And I don't know if he has that idea of God returning and, and this idea that now God is, is rending the heavens for us to see. I think it may be more like Elisha's prayer in 2 Kings. Remember his servant goes out one morning. He got up to, to do an errand and he goes out and he stops in his tracks because the, the king of Aram has sent his army and his chariots of soldiers and they're surrounding the house. And he comes back in and he says, Elijah, what are we going to do? And Elisha immediately prays and to the Lord, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, Lord, show him. And what happens? The, the heavens open, and what does he see? But he's surrounded by the multitude of the Lord's army and the chariots of fire. There, there is this realm that we, we forget is here and, and around us. We, we forget this dimension of, of God in his might and his power. And perhaps this is a response to Jesus prayer as he's being baptized by John because this is not just something that we skip lightly over oh Jesus was baptized yeah that's what John was doing that was his mission to call for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins the heavens were opening God was announcing the voice came down. He spoke directly to his own son. What do these things mean? We go to the Jordan to understand more of the Trinity, to understand more of the ministry that John brought, the opening the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are amazing, powerful, wonderful. And we do need support of the other scriptures and I don't want to uh, preach from John, but I want you to hear what John said about this instance, because I believe that in the words of one of the authors, John Peter Lang, where he said, John and Jesus are inseparably united. That John needed Jesus to come, and Jesus needed John to baptize him. John says this in John chapter 1. He says, He saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, and I did not recognize him. But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. 
And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. It was important that John see this, that John be the one to baptize. John preceded Christ as repentance precedes faith. John must baptize the Messiah, and the Messiah must be baptized by John. Now Jesus says that he said, let this happen. Remember, John didn't want to at first. And Jesus said, allow it that all righteousness may be fulfilled. But in order for Jesus to be manifested in Israel, it was imperative that John preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. It was imperative that Jesus be identified to Israel. This is the Son of God. This is the Anointed One. It was imperative that he be set forth in his messianic office as the object of their faith. And John was the man chosen to do this. He says, he upon whom you see the Spirit. He was told this apparently in a vision. Upon, uh, the one you see the Spirit descending on as a dove and remaining on him. This is the one. This is the one of whom you preach. John had to receive for himself the demonstration that Jesus was that man that Jesus was the Messiah. We, we have these attestations. We have the visible descent of the Spirit as a dove. And I, we talked about the idea of the dove, the, the gentleness, the meekness, the, the modesty that the dove represents. I don't think that we refer back to the dove that was seen by Noah in the ark, that it was safe to come out. That, that dove carrying the olive branch. I, I'm not sure that's in view here. I, I, I think what it is, is it's presenting Christ as the Son of God and yet come to man, to relate to man, to be the declaration of the love and grace of God to man. But notice that the voice of the Father was spoken directly to the Son. Thou art my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. The declaration that Jesus Christ was his beloved Son. These are the things that are attested to, but what do they mean? What do they connect to? Well, certainly one of the things we see here is that the entire Trinity is involved in this. The Son was introduced and baptized. The Spirit comes descending and remaining upon Him. The Father declaring and attesting that Christ is His Son. All three are involved in the baptism of Jesus. And so we see that the Trinity is immediately connected to the ordinance of baptism. We go from here to the end of the Gospels where Matthew declares 
of Jesus saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We see that it is intimately connected with the ordinance of baptism. But be careful, because it is not a magical formula. It's not some kind of incantation that we see, we see it in the movies, and, and I think we see it in some of the churches where there's just, well, you know, it's not a baptism unless you say in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's not only that the Trinity is transcendent, that the Trinity existed and exists apart from and outside of the limits of human experience. But it's a sign that the Trinity is imminent, that the Trinity exists and operates in the realm of human experience and knowledge. The persons of the Trinity are revealed and realized in time. And here we find ourselves, not only in the book of Mark, but as we gather together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, find ourselves in their presence, in the presence of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I would believe that I would be wrong if I did not call any of you who have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have repented of sin and you've turned to Him as your Savior and your Lord. And you experience and desire to walk with Christ on a daily basis, but you have not been baptized. That you ought to do that, that you ought to speak to one of the elders and arrange for that to be done. Again, it, it, we treat it, I think, in our modern American Christianity, baptism as being something that, well, it, it, it's, a, it's a witness. Yes, it is a witness. And it's a gathering of the church. Yes, it's a participation and a fellowship that we rejoice that one has been claimed by Christ as his own. But it, it is your confession. It, it is your duty. It is your passage as a Christian to come under the baptism that you might be in Christ. That you might know these things. That you might make that confession and realization that Christ is your prophet, your priest, your king. And the Holy Spirit is involved in this baptism. But perhaps we ought to ask this question, why would Jesus even seek baptism? John came saying, be baptized, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And here comes one in whom there is no sin. Again, Jesus said it was to fulfill all righteousness. But what does this mean? How, what, what, what does that involve? Well, first, and we can see here the inauguration as the Messiah, the one who would be appointed to these offices of prophet, priest, and king. Again, as we saw it, 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 see in Isaiah, 
that, that he was to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, which was foretold through the prophets ages ago, that this would happen. He, the Spirit would come upon him and, and rest upon him. There was certainly a bond of communion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that existed before time, and certainly a bond between Jesus and the Spirit before his incarnation. But do we not read in the scriptures after the birth of Jesus that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men? And where did this growth come from? And where did this energy and guidance come from? I believe that it came from the Holy Spirit. And this is what is being, I think, indicated by the Spirit coming down and descending upon Christ. It descended on Him. He is being anointed. The Father does the anointing, but it is if the Spirit is the oil of anointing. It is, he is the one who came down upon Him. And Jesus was thoroughly furnished for the divine work that was laid out before Him. The scriptures say that the Spirit was given to Jesus beyond measure. It wasn't as if Jesus was independent of the Spirit. There is that interdependency. And this part of the baptism, perhaps, as some of the authors refer to it, perhaps crass in our hearing, for official purposes. This is the inauguration that people saw, the Spirit descending as a dove. Jesus, even as he comes out of the water, he sees it. And there are some who believe that perhaps Jesus in his humanity was looking for that sign, was looking for that experience, looking for the Spirit to come. That when he was under the water in baptism, that he was actually praying, may I see the heavens open. The heavens were being torn and the Spirit was coming down upon him. Fulfilling what the psalmist writes in Psalm 45, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. God anointed his only son. And then the Spirit, it says, came, not only descended on him, but remained on him. The Spirit was endowing Christ, if I could use that term. His being endowed and empowered for service. What is going to happen immediately after Jesus is baptized? He's going out into the desert to encounter Satan. The fullness of Jesus' maturity is ready for the fullness of the Spirit's power at this point. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, but now he is being declared as fully able to walk and to minister in that power. He is equipped, he's prepared, he's furnished with all the gifts and powers of God Almighty. The fullness of the divine nature was Christ. I don't know how this all works. 
I believe that the scriptures teach us that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was not God with an imitation skin. He was not man who pretended and said things like he was God. He was fully God and fully man. And the Spirit remained on him. In the words of Peter, he writes this in Acts chapter 10, speaking of him, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The Spirit remained on him. He walked in the power of the Spirit. And we sometimes deny Jesus his humanity. We, we know that he wept. We know that he was sorrowful. We know that he had no place to lay his head. We know that he was mocked and spit upon. We know that he had to, the writer to Hebrews says, had to be like those whom he would come to save in all aspects except for sin. He had to experience these things. But how did he walk in them? He walked in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think the, God, the gospel unites Jesus with his disciples in this, in his walking on earth, in his death, in his burial and resurrection. Paul says of this in Romans chapter 6, we have been baptized into Christ. What does that mean? We have become united with him, Paul says, not only in this life, but in his death, that we may walk in newness of life. In Colossians 2, he describes that we have buried, been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and in the working of God. This is what baptism means. This is why I would encourage you to be baptized if you know him and have not been. You've been buried with him by baptism. Walk in that newness of life. You were united with him. That is why Jesus was baptized, so that he would be like his fellows in all aspects except for sin. By partaking of the Spirit of Christ, all believers are taken into the life of God himself. The Spirit of Christ in and through the risen Lord, because of our union with him, because of being united with him, has become the spirit of man. And it is that power and that guidance and that strength and that leading of the Holy Spirit that I think is illustrated here even in our Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. In Galatians, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us in order that in Christ Jesus, we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here we see the glory of God in his plan that Jesus of Nazareth would come walking <coughs> to the Jordan River that day. The inauguration of this great ministry, John had to be there. The Holy Spirit had to be there so that John would see 
but that Jesus would also see and that we would see as well. And then Mark tells us a voice. A voice came out of that rent heavens. Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Wow. The father addresses the son directly. Thou art my beloved son. The father accepts Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. The surety of that covenant that he would give to all those who believed in him. The father gives his full approbation of the Christ ministry. That ministry to seek and to save the lost. John declares in John chapter 3, The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. And yet we hear it from the father's own voice. I love you. I love you. And the word that's used here for beloved is only used in the New Testament speaking of Christ as the one loved by the Father. You are my one, only beloved Son. The passage that I read earlier from Isaiah 42, God says of him through the prophet, my chosen one, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And that's the idea here. The old words, the old writers use the word complacency. I, the only definition I could come up with that they would be looking at for that one is to have one's pleasure fully satisfied. <laughs> to have the pleasure of God fully satisfied in his only son, Jesus Christ. An amazing thing. And the language here that Mark writes, Thou art my beloved son. This is once and for all time and forever his delight. Bishop Lightfoot wrote, The mission of the son is the revelation of the father's love. For as he is the only begotten, the Father's love is perfectly represented in him. <laughs> he must have been reading Hebrews chapter 1. The perfect representation of the Father is seen in Jesus Christ. In you, he says, in you and you alone, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But... There is nothing in natural man of which God would ever say, I am well pleased. We are weak. We are naturally enemies of God. We are imperfect. We are fickle. We are changeable. We are easily muddled. And yet, and yet, God says of those who are in Christ, with you I am well pleased. Because we are in Christ. Because it is in His Son that He is delighting. Now I know that there are those who would say, when God looks down at 
man, at an individual. He does not see him. He sees Christ. I don't believe that's accurate to the scriptures. He sees us. I am a sinner. I, I am a man who is fickle. I, I am changeable. I am fearful. I am as an enemy of God in my life before he drew me to himself. He sees me, but what does he see? That my name is written in the book of life. That I am in that body of Christ. I am in him. And he looks at my advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ says, he's one of mine. I died for him. I gave my life for him. I saved him from the debt and the penalty of his sin. And the Father is well pleased in Christ because Christ sought and brought the lost to himself. If you are here and you are not in Christ, if you do not know him as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Hear the Father's voice. He is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. But if you are not in Him, you are not of His. But those of us who know Christ, who are in Him, we can be assured we can have that encouragement and hope. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Jesus Christ, his only beloved son. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Again, I ask that you would help us to understand these things. Help us to walk in these things. Help us to, to walk in that newness of life and walk in that light which you have shown for us. And we ask, Father, that we would truly give glory and honor and praise to our Lord Jesus Christ and that you would build up your church and that you would bring us to be with him forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.